It is estimated that 75% or more of all silent films have been lost forever. Negligence, greed, malice, and war have overseen the erasure of the majority of films' earliest years. But all hope is not lost. Long-forgotten films are being rediscovered in the unlikeliest of places. For the first time in over a century, we are able to return to context these previously unknowable works. It is our job to write the next chapter of their histories. Ashes to classics, rescued from oblivion. Hello, and welcome to our first feature episode. We had a bit of an introduction last time of Ashes to Classics. It's a very special one this time, so we are obviously exploring the lost films that have then been found. This is one of the more notable films in film history, actually, for a variety of reasons that we'll go to, and therefore has incredible historical weight outside of just its rediscovery. I am Stephen, and with me, as always, is David. Hello, David. How are you? And a happy Thanksgiving to you. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen. Uh, I was about to say happy Thanksgiving back, but not not something you guys celebrate. No, no, we, we, we don't give thanks. We are a cynical bunch, us Brits, and we have nothing to be thankful for. Um, yes, I'm doing well to answer your uh, question there. So within our Gates Oscar show, there'll be a few films in this series that will be um, more familiar to, to others. And even if you've not seen it, you may be familiar with the historical significance of Within Our Gates, um, which we'll get to Oscar show as a filmmaker later. But this is the only Oscar show film that I've seen. And we'll get to the conversation around that. I had seen this before. Um, David had seen this before. Um, we both watched it again for the podcast. And the reason why people come to this film is actually twofold. So some of my old students went on to be um, film students at university and a lot of them told me that, you know, they did the, the intro to film class and that is the taking you through the history of the feature film. And for a long time, and yes, when I mentioned that film, the opening film was Dougie Griffith's Birth of Nation. And that was your intro to film. Griffith will inevitably come up uh, yes. so much when it comes to the history of silent film and lately m more so than uh, in the past a lot has been done to kind of minimalize his yeah. uh, import because it has been uh, inflated a lot over mm. the time. Overstated, definitely. Certainly. But at the same time, it's inevitable in discussion because because of that inflation, yeah, he you know has become an important figure through yeah. influence through the rest of it. So it's just, it's something you can't cut out or ignore and the film textbooks have already been written and they uh, allude to him heavily um so he is canonicized in a variety of things so that was the intro to film film and he was telling me that the course then was changed they got a new lecturer in who was a bit more au fait with things and this became the intro to film thing and then that lecturer um got let go because of temporary contracts and covid and they went back to um, birth of nation but this is for that reason interesting because it's often a here is our early feature film film on programs of study and the reason it's more interesting um, to us and culturally is this is the earliest surviving film from a black filmmaker. Mm -hmm. I'll get back to, I want to get back to the comparison with uh, Birth of a Nation a little bit later because it is yes. an important thing that comes up often with it. But yeah, I, I want to talk about the film individually as well yes. and, and uh, kind of important there. So one of the noteworthy things as well is that it's not just a, you know, the earliest surviving from a, uh, from a black filmmaker, but it's the early surviving race film as well. Yes. A particular kind of film that was made specifically for black audiences in America. 
primarily. Do you know much about race films, Stephen? No, I don't. I The only thing I know is kind of like modern films that see themselves as callbacks or pastiche to that. So there is the... Um, it's Imitation of Life, the Cirque film. Yeah. Um... The, that is definitely playing in the area of... And that's, I mean, that's a remake as, as well, is it not? It is a remake. It's a remake yeah. of a, a film from the 30s that starred uh, Claude Colbert. But um, that that's not necessarily a film I would consider a race film because interesting not, so what's the distinction it's not it's not geared potted. towards black audiences it's very much imitation of life in particular is very yeah. much geared towards white audiences who are yes. who are interested in uh grappling with or even reconciling guilt with uh racial you know uh, inequality in, yeah. in the contemporary time period or using it as, as a kind of dramatic foil is often how it is, and that's uh, sometimes a contestable issue with that film in particular. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, we we both have similar feelings on that film, I think, and you can find our writings on it. Uh, but but race films are films that are created primarily to uh, mm-hmm. capitalize for black audiences, and uh, sometimes they were made by black filmmakers, as is the case with Oscar Michaud, kind of flagship individual that kind of represents yeah. race films from that era. It's it's generally defined as ranging from the uh, late nineteen teens when movies were really becoming more commercialized and mm. widespread up until the 1950s ish obviously you, you could consider something like the black exploitation movement in okay that's the 70s question. yeah you could definitely consider that as a successor not only in in the sense that it was began by black filmmakers which was then mm. capitalized upon by white-led studios and white directors uh telling <laughs> yes. black stories in in the similar vein there and, and then it faded out and and you could point to other uh, resurgences of black storytelling cropping up, especially in in American cinema. Mm. Uh, I think that's particularly what we, when we talk about race films, because that's not it, it's not really something that exists outside of America. They didn't make British. It's really interesting, films, you know. Yeah, which I guess grows out of a, a very specific cultural context that this film is trying to very much deal with and very Absolutely. much like reply to certain things. Very interesting. Yeah, but in particular, when we talk about race films, we mean. The, the early era, you know, the kind of classic period of, yeah. of Hollywood history from the uh, early or late teens to the uh, 50s. And uh, some of the more recognizable examples in terms of like the, the big prestigious ones, there were some ones that the studios made in the 40s um, that, that you might have heard of. There was uh, just a couple, literally just a couple of big lavish musicals by MGM and 20th Century Fox that were all black casts and both had a uh, Lena Horne in them, who was one of the uh, okay. more prestigious black stars at the time, who was actually given opportunity to perform and be recognized within the Hollywood studio system. They were uh, cabin in the sky and stormy weather respectively, which are both terrific films, the latter, especially. And while they're geared towards black audiences, primarily they, they were also meant to be appealing and interesting for white audiences as well. They only made a couple, though, because there was obviously a, a disparity in reception. There wasn't as much allure for both. Is what they, they found that black audiences were just as interested in seeing the films that were all white casts as they were their own, you know, their own representation on screen. So it just it made more financial sense for the studios to just keep doing that. So I'm not trying to make an equivalence here, but I think it's, it's, it reminds me of the case that's often talked about about gender representation in film of the, the you get a lot of people, um, producers, making the point that it's been proven over the years that women will turn up to see films about men. 
but men won't turn up to see films about women um, or are not seen to. And that has led to the kind of like the the mainstreamification of these like male leading films as opposed to films that specifically speak to an experience. Because like, well, they, they will co-op this, they will go for this experience. They will be okay with this and they will make that effort to, to sympathise or empathise because they already see themselves as non-default because of cultural presentation over time, which obviously is, is, is heinous and upsetting and really, a really disgusting social standard that's been propagated from the media. And it's very interesting that's led to this kind of like homogenization of media, like yeah. over time. If I had to armchair psychoanalyze why yeah, which you do that have might be to. the case a bit more, uh, I, I would say it has to do more with the the driving collective interest of, of the medium, that kind of like yeah. water cooler idea that these are the big things that everyone's talking about. So everyone wants to see them regardless of okay. race, gender, whatever it is. And so... And therefore because, that reflects yeah. like social systems that are already deeply hierarchical and deeply like like ingrained with privilege. All right. So at this point, the interest is already so entrenched hmm. in society to go out and see the thing that is so big and everyone's talking about that it's just going to feed itself and everyone's going to be interested regardless of what it is actually what it represents yeah and and it's a reflection of who's making these things and their interests and Mm -hmm. i think as you've alluded to obviously of these race films it's not it's not always and maybe not primarily black filmmakers but people have certain stories they want to put on screen and when it's the same type of people in the same kind of positions the same kind of stories come up come up come up and even when i mean we're seeing this like dealing to contemporary film there's so many directors now making their like passion projects which are like it's the me growing up story and they're becoming again quite homogenous and again that's reflective of the kind of people we've had in those positions you've got you've got fabermans you've got belfast you've got empire of light etc etc which seem unique to themselves but then paint this portrait of being like oh so you'll grow up loving cinema huh in that same way and that yeah. same kind of thing it should be said about uh, race films as well, if we want to uh, roll back yeah. a little bit here, um, that initially it it was a lot of black filmmakers, black production companies making these all-black casts and appealing to them because the market for them was demanding at that time. You know, people wanted to see mm. all kinds of films, films about themselves and such. But, you know, the when that interest was not being filled, others popped up to do that. And independent... Is that... A case of like technology and distribution defining audience. Then is that because again, like local distribution would be so much more of a thing as opposed to this is being rolled out of the whole country? Could you like program to certain communities that you knew would have certain audiences, and those films would play in those places, and that was a more important audience to get? Definitely, and also it has to do with the the time period in that the Hollywood machine had not quite taken mm. over the country in its entirety yet. Okay. You know, uh, it was it was certainly coming through, but this is also the time period where features are just now kind of starting to become more of the standard in the late teens you you've got names like you know griffith who are who are starting yeah. to roll out their big films but it's just now starting at the end you know like we have yeah, like planting the flag for this is cinema this can be like novels we've still got competing production companies all across the country in chicago in new york yeah. there's even a uh, nominal black production company that existed out of jacksonville florida so therefore, regionality could be your sell then. So when there are multiple production companies, if you're the one that caters to your specific audience in the place, and that's what makes you stand out, and that's what keeps that audience, because we're not yeah. we're not national yet. We're not huge oversight that can just like push yeah. down the little guy. It is it is not quite monopolized and eaten up the mm. entire production for for the country at this point. So that's why a lot of independent productions were allowed to thrive. It's the same reasoning we get as well, like we alluded to last week. Why you know again the same kind of parallel that a lot of 
women filmmakers were thriving at this yes time. i was going to mention that actually because like the one thing i have watched i don't know if it'd go under the cat i mean because it's it, it's a short because obviously this is this is from 1912 so this is this is old older, older, old but there's an alice guy blachet short called a fool and his money which is seen yep. as being the first film that we know of because obviously may others may be found at points um that has an all-black cast and i would really recommend to the listener to watch that it's just a i mean is is it terrific no is it is it interesting and playful um you could make debates about like it's interesting when you when you're used to certain um identities not being on screen much and it is a bit of a stunt that should not be to have a cast in this way then you start to think why this story and that why that cast and it is interesting to think about the idiom of all in his money for money easily parted and using that story as your this is my first film of an, an all-black cast maybe accidentally or maybe purposely um plays into some pernicious stereotypes but actually an expression because i was a bit cynical going in, in expression it's just a fun little comedy because alice gobachet makes fun little comedies that are occasionally more socially minded but not really they're there to be kind of like little playful things of look you can point cameras at things and they move mm-hmm. yeah so there, there was definitely a lot of films that were cropping up like that at, at this time period mm. and and so that's why they, they they got labeled this way as well as these these race films which itself yeah. seems like kind of a pejorative term but it does it's like when you hear like a woman's picture isn't it which again was like a term of being like this is like is this a woman's picture this for the and actually i think do you have this in the u.s you might not do are you aware of the audience called the gray pound the gray pound probably not it doesn't yeah i think this is a british thing um so we realized at a certain point the gray pound was a really powerful audience i don't know why it's called that i don't know if it's pound as in like as they're like kept in a pound or it's pound as in like sterling i think it's probably sterling and what it actually refers to is it's this older audience that have grown up with film and therefore are interested in film and have a lot of free time and therefore want to spend their money on film so films like the best exotic marigold hotel i bet did like nothing in america but was weirdly huge and i was like why is this one so big here it's because the retired people wanted to go out and see it films like the king's speech films like the queen etc etc so this is like untapped audience that is used pejoratively but then loads of filmmakers started to cater towards that being like oh if we can get this like retired have grown up with film audience that's an audience that marvel aren't getting to that the bond isn't getting right. to anymore because it's reinvented itself so we still do have this idea of like pejorativized audiences becoming their own little microcosms that actually can be quite profitable. Yeah, and and that's again where where the kind of studios took over when it came to to race films. But because it was contestable in terms of how successful it was, especially in the South, where either it only played for black audiences or mm. it was you know completely cut up. In the case of you know a lot of films that featured black characters, probably like they it all had to do with you know, local distribution there and local censor boards and what they deemed was what people wanted to see effectively in those areas. You know, it was entirely controlled on a state-by-state basis. So is this the most notable surviving race film then? Is this the one to point to? Yeah, and and the surviving aspect of that is kind of the key there. Interesting. Because, because so many of them, I, I believe the number I read was that only about 100 race films survive in any capacity. And this being not only the earliest, but one of the more significant, striking, uh, and potent from a yeah. you know, a black filmmaker, all really kind of defined this. This this has kind of become very much the the post child of race films and Oscar mm. Micheaux being kind of like the embodying champion of them in general. 
So what do you know about Osama's show? Because I, I will admit my ignorance here. Like, like the furthest thing about Osama's show is he he made this film. I mean, I'm using made in the in the broadest like shorthand sense. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll be auteur theorists for a second. But yeah, the, my, my knowledge goes as far as he's that guy that directed Within Our Gates. So o- Oscar Michaud is a fascinating individual and one who very much i feel fits the the auteur mold there interesting because one never because like i never really know when looking back because obviously the the credits of this because this comes from a time i'm having this is a, a tangent i apologize i'm having a conversation with a colleague years ago because they were teaching um rebecca and they were putting on rebecca to their class and i went oh the hitchcock movie and they're like what i went you know hitchcock's rebecca and they went no it's selznick isn't it and i'm like mm-hmm. well yeah but but hitchcock directed it and she goes yeah but it says on the poster David Selznick's Rebecca. And I'm like, oh yes, that's because at the time it was seen as a producer's medium, so you'd attach a producer's name to the film. But with Alfred Hitchcock, he is seen as like early auteur, so often you refer in that way. So I wasn't sure if this was from the period, because it has producer credits at the beginning of the film, if this was actually like more of a production vehicle with director for hire, or if it was more auteured to use the, yep. uh, the pejorative. As, as a slight tangent, just to kind of explore the, the nature of the the auteur idea there mm-hmm. it is interesting how flexible it is and when it does yes. apply to people like producers that are very heavily yeah. involved like selznick uh and such or if you've got you know the director is the most obvious one but sometimes even there's a capacity where, where we can attribute to specific actors you tom know, cruise I'll, yeah yep that's... genuinely like tom cruise in, in that most recent top gun that that is a tom cruise film that is a tom cruise movie <laughs> Hundred percent, hundred percent, and when I and, and I think of ones in terms of the more you know classic Hollywood mode, like I, mm. I don't look at the, the you know the, the like the Fred Astaire movies, and I don't think of the directors behind them, yeah. you know, who's framing them. It's their the Fred Astaire films, and he you know he designed the, the yeah. most pivotal moments, even if he's not writing the dialogue or you know def, you know uh, directing or framing the shots. He he very much is defining that film. I think that's the room where I like Otterfer. I think I agree with you that the 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 room I like it is when it's to highlight kind of like what seems to be the if not the over influence but the feeling you come away with of like what was guiding the experience and even if that's just like a, an intangible feeling you don't know, never really know it's that sense of like oh that felt very written like i well there's a podcast up on the website where we talk about um the banshees of Sharon, and though that's directed and written by the same person it's a very written film and sometimes you like this film is like oh this person, the script mm-hmm. just really got into this but yeah a, 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 an aside but a, a fun little filmic craft aside yeah so as far as Oscar Michaud, uh, I've got some, some basic biographical rundown cool. here to go through. Cool. I would like to know. Indicate. I'd like to know Oscar Michaud. Yeah. So I'll start here by by saying that Oscar Michaud was born the son of a former slave in 1884. And I want to highlight this not as a means of defining him through that kind of exploitative idea, but yeah. as a reminder to how yes. incredibly recent that was and how that single generational removal will define his work and not in a way of making um really crass equivalences but i think sometimes when looking back at older film about certain subjects we forget how historically proximate it was to certain things and like enslavement is still very much in cultural memory and you know enslavement still persists in many places modern enslavement is is, is obviously a horrendous thing and yeah. enslavement still persists in the u.s but like the period that is referred to is now more in cultural memory than it is in kind of like living memory. But that very much 
So, so I had a similar experience recently when I was watching the original All Quiet on the Western Front, and I looked at like the year it came, I was like, this comes so close to the First World War, and seeing those things depicted now is still very, very powerful. But the idea of like these experiences put on screen so close to the the event just being present as opposed to history is always something we should reflect on. So yeah, I think that's really, really valid. The a history of, of familial enslavement. I, I think it's an important thing to highlight, especially because the way we tend to talk about history in eras, in particular yes. in American history, there is a kind of conclusivity to it that seems to mm. kind of wrap things up. So when you talk about the end of the Civil War and the end of slavery, the Emancipation you know, Proclamation yeah. and, and such, it, there, it's spoken about with such finality, even though we come back very quickly, like less than 50 years to like Jim Croyer and even immediately after the end of Reconstruction. And how all of that is still very prevalent, you know, and it's still very much existing the, in that decrepit root at, at the heart of America. That's such an important idea to articulate. So the two things I'll point to. So I have, I've been reading for a while, I should get back and finish it, but Neocolonialism by Kwame Nkrumah, which is like one of those like seminal texts about colonialism. And it's the idea that being like active occupation of many African nations stopped. And that led to this and he argues perhaps in ways even more pernicious soft occupation. And people can go, look, we stopped doing this. But the way that financial domination and resource domination is handed out still means oppression continues. My thing, have you read or are you familiar with Tony Morrison's Beloved? No, no, I'm not. It's, it's, it's absolutely fabulous. There's a Jonathan Deming film of it I've never seen, actually. I'd like to. But it, it, is, it is such a powerful text. And one of the inciting incidents of it is it is set at the period that we'd seen as being the end of enslavement. But the one of the main characters, because it's got its split narrative, flees the enslaver with their baby and then feels about to get caught. So, and this is very shocking, so I apologise. So um, feels that their baby is better to not be alive um, than to grow up enslaved. And then that's the moment when they realise at that point that they are then allowed to go into freedom. And if that baby had not been killed, that baby would have grown up in quotes free. So it deals with that kind of like thing. Then what the rest of the book deals with is this idea of like, now that you are this freed community, some of the not rights, but the things you'll be given, you now have to go get for yourself. And it deals with that like in such a great, important social way that enslavement was stopped in that way. But we need to move the conversation on to then what was given to these people in terms of like reparations, in terms of help, in terms of community building. And it explores that incredibly difficult period of like that, that great joy of being free in quotes, what freedom actually meant. Um, so that period, you're right, is so worth looking into and the borders between. And to go within our gates, I feel like if there is a kind of like a message from the film beyond it being about systemic racism it is so much about the past affecting the present like it's even in its structure of these things that happened before that come back and is it inelegant in its expression of that definitely yes but i think that like adds to some of its like raw power as well yeah absolutely especially when you talk about the structure there in terms of Mm. how the 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 big climax the uh, as a flashback sequence yeah yeah yeah, yeah. recontextualizes the entire film that's a great way of highlighting how again like the past is informative the present yeah past is present and so yeah to go back to your point yes it very much matters of yep. um yeah oscar michaud's um familial background but as far as that you know uh was something he never wanted to let hinder him he, he had this big mm. philosophy of that hard work was the thing that was going to make you successful and to endure and persist in spite of any uh limitations restrictions oppression um he was an entrepreneur and a self-starter 
from very early. He worked all manner of available jobs that were available to African Americans yeah. in the early 20th century. Uh, before he ended up being able to purchase some land and working as a homesteader. Oh, wow. And during that time period, he began writing as well. He wrote articles about his experience and the struggles that he had to make work and submitted them to local newspapers. Which... How many of those do we still have access to? Uh, that is something that would have been nice for me to find out. <laughs> well, well, listener, I think that's a thing for you to look into, like how much of these survived. Because it's, again, like uh, film history, so much lost. Written history, again, so much is lost. Yeah, the, the articles I don't know as much about, but he ended up turning a lot of those and a lot of those same ideas into novels. Oh, yeah. cool. He became a writer, and so a lot of the same experiences he put into uh, stories. The first one yeah. uh, that manifested, uh, it was in 1918, it was a novel called The Homesteader. Hmm. Um, and so that was a lot of his experiences projected, you know, growing up in, in, an, in an oppressed environment and striving and succeeding and working in you know as a homesteader himself in the uh chicago area i should say the success of the novel the local success of the novel caught the attention of a, a local production company the lincoln motion picture company which is the first known all-black movie production company at the time and he went into negotiations to see about getting it adapted and he wanted it to be a, a feature and they were like not as much on it and so eventually uh, negotiations fell apart and he's like just gonna make it on my own. I'm gonna do it myself. So he established his own production company to make the film awesome. himself. And so he got the money together by selling shares in his company. Okay. Uh, to to finance the films, as well as what little he had worked up at the time. And it was a real self-starting effort. The, the way he was able to produce them, we were very limited, and they would, you know, so they would only uh, strike a handful of copies that they would then yeah. move around to different cinemas. Which therefore makes preservation so much more difficult uh, exactly, to link back exactly. to, to our so, subject here. Yeah, for, so for an example, The Homesteader, which he yeah. produced and made in 1919, uh, is a lost film. We don't have that yeah. anymore. The, the first one we have is the second one. Okay, so this is the second film then? Yes. I, I, I presumed he'd done like more and more before that. That's really, really interesting. No, no second film. He, he was able to produce 42 feature films between 1919 and wow. 1948. Of the 26 silent features he made, he made 26, uh, 26 of those 42 feature films were silent features, hmm. and two have survived in their entirety. One other exists in a partial form. Okay. Though, those are all three, I've seen all three of those films. They are Within Our Gates, and then Body and Soul, 1925, yeah. which was Paul Robeson's debut, for those who are aware of uh, Paul Robeson, his very large impact as a uh, early black star of, of Hollywood films, and maybe of interest to you, an active communist. Nice. That is definitely definitely of interest to me. Yes, yeah, look up, look up look up, Paul Robeson. He is a, I will do. an incredible icon. He was a very active political activist. Yeah, and, and the other film is Symbol of the Unconquered, which is a... Uh, that is a title. Yeah. And it, and it deals directly with relations with the Ku Klux Klan. So and, these are uh, perennial themes then throughout at least like, the surviving absolutely. films. Yeah, yeah. B Body and Soul is less so, but I'll get into that uh, in, in a particular theme that it kind of resonates mm. between. But Symbol of the Unconquered is, is in partial things. There, there was apparently a big finale that's this kind of repudiation of triumphant representation of the Klan in Birth of a Nation, which no longer exists. And that is quite unfortunate because it would be quite the dramatic finale yeah. for the film which is a, a little hard to parse with how much it's missing unfortunately 
but still very much worth checking out. Fantastic. I mean, yeah, it's it's someone that I, I need to check out more of, certainly. Um, and it's it's very interesting to know that those 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 themes seem to echo around a filmography, and that you've got more out of the filmography. I was yep. very worried that because so much about Within Our Gates is about, and I'm guilty of this. I describe it as I lead with it's important because of this historical role it plays, which can devalue the inherent qualities of it as a film. And I was concerned to be like, when you do not have that kind of like that thing to tie your film to. Is it as fulfilling a filmography to just just watch? And it's 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 pleasing to me that you've got more out of his work. Um, I yes. need to need to do There's, that. And again, when I when I say he is an auteur, I, I mean that significantly. In that there is mm. a consistent thread of recurring themes in the films that I have seen. I I do awesome. need to see even more myself. Uh, you know, again, like it's it's these three that I've sampled from the the silent era, especially. Yeah. But he made a lot of sound films, a lot more of which survive, uh, which you can find. Uh, a lot of these are preserved through a box that you can purchase through Kino Lober. Yeah, I saw Pioneers that. I... Of, uh, yeah, African-American cinema. So I would highly recommend that. Yeah, I need to get that. I, I presume it's region locked, unfortunately. Um, you can but, watch a lot yeah. of them online. Yes. I know I know a lot of uh, free streaming services. And a lot of these are on the Criterion channel and on uh, Canopy. That's I mean, and Within Our Gates is literally on the Wikipedia page. Within Our Gates, yep. you can watch it there. Like Night of the Living Dead, you know, we'll always say the same thing. Um, and... The is it the Library of Congress YouTube channel? Yes. Just have it, but it's without soundtrack, which is annoying. The Library of Congress um, is uh. Did, did you say something about the soundtrack? I I I think because I I watched a bit of the Library of Congress version on YouTube, and I believe mm-hmm. it was without musical accompaniment. Because I guess that that is because they've documented the film. Yeah, that's that's part of the problem. I think that's also the case on the Wikipedia page, unless that's how you watched it. Yeah, probably because I, I I bet that's the the same version. Um, yeah, because that'll be Creative Commons, won't it? Oh, that's one of the that's again that's one of the weird things with silent film soundtracks is that the film is separate from the score. Yeah. And so, even though silent films are often in the public domain, the soundtracks that are produced with them or most associated with them yeah. are not. And that's a big reason why a lot of more prestigious titles are also kind of stuck in copyright limbo as well. There's some yeah. big name production that we that we have like official scores for or largely associated scores that were produced in like the 80s or 90s. That then the films are just not released on home media because the the rights are so weirdly tangled up. It's very frustrating. It it, it makes it really difficult though um, when watching certain things because as we've mentioned too before, like the the soundtrack, it can be additive definitely, but it's never going to make a bad film amazing. But it really can sink a film. Like what I watched a bit of that soundtrack and it is it is difficult. It is very difficult that bit there. And I watched another version and it just had this as so many silent films that have been now put digitally do. This is like very short looping refrain of music. Oh yeah. In the same way where when you get a bad song choice in a film and you're like it can really be a problem because you're like listen for the scene. And because there are thematically varied scenes in this film, some of it's quite funny, some of it's quite like sharp and astute in that way, some of it's very, very depressing, some of it's quite action packed. And I've got the same kind of like thing the whole time, like this does not fit and is actually actually damaging it. And then later found a version that had more of like a, a, a catered score and was an, is an easier watch. But it's difficult to go out there because again, like these things that have not been preserved in some clear, this is the version. Because it is made in separation from, I mean, who knows what was the soundtrack to go with it to begin with. Um, I mean, I certainly don't. No, and and I've not found anything, uh, you know, in terms of uh, recorded information about yeah. any soundtrack that was associated with it at the time. If something was commissioned officially written mm. for it, or if it was kind of just implemented, you know, on, on the spot, as we said. It's it's very interesting and a topic we discussed a bit last week, but one that kind of, kind of remains the, the key fixture of defining a experience with silent film yeah. watching i feel like 
And there's some cases where the film itself is so transcendent that it can overcome. It's it's very yeah. rare, though. Well, one experience I, I, I kind of always associate is that I was recommended a silent film by a friend one time. And the only available version was without a soundtrack. And so they just yeah. told me to listen to this song that they had that kind of went with it. And, it. and it didn't fit. Like, I just, you know, I put it on, like, a YouTube video and I, I had to loop it a couple times yeah. to keep it going with the film. But the film was still so magnificent regardless of, of that. But I found it very interesting because it ended up coloring my perception of the conclusion of the film in a way yeah. that when I watched it later with a, a an actual associated soundtrack, it was obviously in, uh, intended to be different. But I found that it resonated so well still, you know, despite that disparity that I had. So it's, it's very it's really, it, really interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, music guides emotion. It's why so many scores feel overly manipulative. I mean, you go back to yeah. your, like, scores in Spielberg films, like, stand out for me of being like, stop trying to make me feel emotion, just do it through the goddamn movie. Um, but yeah, um, so to, to go back to Within Our Gates, I think a yes. thing that even my cursory knowledge of the film is, I mean, I think a reason, when, and you'll give me the actual reasons of, of being lost and found or whatever, but this film was, was banned in a lot of places, was it not? Or at least was repressed in a lot of places. Yeah, again, and also just from a, a case of a lot of, you know, white-owned theaters didn't want to show mm. this, or also the limitations of uh, Oscar Micheaux's ability as, you know, again, also his own distributor to get these films out more so. Again, it's it's kind of yeah. miraculous that this film survives. Um, totally. Because... I read a lot about people being worried it was going to, like, stoke up or further entrench racial divisions and it was going to, you know, they couldn't show these kind of things, blah, 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 um, which I'm sure people were saying at the time. And that's, again, another interesting reason why films can, like, fall off the map and why it's so amazing that they come back. I, I get a little frustrated when I see this. When this film comes up, as, as you yeah. displayed in the very beginning of our discussion here, it almost invariably always is juxtaposed with the birth of a nation. And sometimes yeah, it's I... even highlighted as a reactionary film to a birthday. Reactive, but yes, I mean, that, yeah. that's how it was first pitched to me, of like, this is very much the, this film shows that, and I was, was even under the impression at a point that even the title was kind of like a play on the idea of some of the ideas espoused in Birth of Nation, of the fear of they are within our gates, the fear of they live among us, and this film is very much showing actual black life on film as a retort. And I think that's, it is true to an extent, but I, I really hesitate... I really hesitate when, when people associate it so concretely yeah. for a couple of reasons. Because number one, Birth of a Nation came out five years before Michaud even began making films. Yeah, I think I think four years before the films right. entered into production. Um, but yes. Yes. So to, to just say with complete assurance yeah. that this film is a direct reaction to it, I was like, that's that's kind of condensing the timeline a little too much. True. You know, uh, Birth of a Nation certainly had such an... an insane impact and you know continual impact for years and years yes that to to act like this isn't in some way in conversation with it i think is obviously you know disingenuous but i i find it reductive to consider it a direct retort because yeah a, a, a diss track of sorts you know and and it continues to build a, a mythology around birth of a nation yeah. as this like kind of towering um you know mm, interesting the fact that it gets a retort means that it is more of a statement to begin with as opposed to something that we can actually just ignore from film history. Again, it keeps perpetuating this idea that, that Birth of a Nation is this omnipresent, untoppable yeah. behemoth uh, of a film. And in actuality, there's so much more going on. It's not yeah. know, the sole defining point of, of Hollywood at that point. So I think 
for me, the, the 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 way in which I would cite it, I think, is is very very specific, and I'd use it to as as a counterpoint, um, specifically in, in argument of the people that want to defend birth and nation, and many of them exist, and we we will know yep. some of them. They are way more prevalent than you think, and it goes back to one of the defenses is you know one is just pure filmmaking, which I actually find that film very very boring. I have seen it; it's very very boring. But one is pure filmmaking. Another one is the that we have to take it within its time, and I just point to something I gates and being like, even if it's not linked to it this film shows that people felt very differently about these issues at the time this was not and we only um kind of like put in amber certain opinions and yes there were a lot of horrendous racists at the time that loved birth of nation but birth of nation was deeply contentious at point of release and yep. films like this are a great reminder so we can't just go oh that was back then and we've moved on it's like yes a lot of people were like that back then and that is a great capsule of thought from a great like a tranche of people but it's also a reminder that only certain people were given the platform to express thoughts and were given the platform to shape history as histories and films like within our gates and i wish there were more of them available to us but alas film restoration show that at the time these because within our gates its greatest strength for me is there is a lot of nuance about race in this film about the different relations and power dynamics that is so much more interesting than a lot of like modern films, especially from non-black perspectives I'll put there, because there are a lot of amazing films with black filmmakers that present the black experience in ways that I could never like begin to like fully understand and fully kind of like um with. But the bits in this film that deal with internal prejudice, that deal with certain members of communities using their community as a way to build themselves up and to, to gain success out of that and how education links in with race how class links in with race it's dialogue around this is, is so complex and so much more complex than we we are willing to give weight to that period at so many points we want to go look there were the racists and it's like well even this shows this very nuanced understanding of relationships because of course they did because it's lived experience that's that's a couple of those you touched on there are the perennial themes that i was referring to. yeah michelle is often very critical of his own community there and how yes the uncle tom stereotype comes up a lot very directly yeah. in in this film specifically and is dealt with magnificently yep and and that is again a, a consistent theme that, that crops up in terms of other members of the the community looking to step on others to kind of climb yeah. and, and secure a place and one of the more interesting ones that i find in that he embodies that through the uh, institutions of religion. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The, the the preacher in this film is again it, only in it for a little bit, but it's such a brilliant thing, and it's so nicely contextualized. And it's one of the the issues I I could point to with Michaud as a filmmaker is that he's very blunt. Yes, you know, he's, it's very didactic. This film is incredibly didactic. It has conversations at you and uses yes. characters clearly as. And so I think we're in the in the conversation of the film here. I think quite quite nicely, and we'll go to its um, recovery and, and restoration. Yep. But just to set the groundworks of. The basic plot of this film, um, for those that have not seen, though, please, please, please do watch. It is absolutely wonderful. So there is a... So Sylvia, isn't it? So Sylvia, yes. a black woman with, from an educated background, is going to... So she's a divorcee, I believe, and she is going to get married to this man. And then due to a thing that's not very clear at the beginning, in a way you're like, wait, what's happening? That falls apart. She walks in on something that's not that well articulated and is affronted by it. And the husband-to-be leaves to, like, Texas or somewhere? I forget where. I mean, it's Boston? I, I can't remember. I think maybe it's Boston. And that leads to um, Sylvia transitioning from the north of the country, which has this amazing... I believe if you watch nothing else this movie, the opening title card represents a dark sense of humour this film has and also like a cutting edge being like, yeah, that's how it is with how it introduces the north. And then she's in the south and she finds herself in an 
undereducated, purposefully undereducated, kept in that way, black community. And there is a school that wants to help the black community from within the black community. And the rest of the film is very much her attempt to get that funded. And it goes places from there. So that is the film. Apologies, yep. but there you go. Yep, it's a, a pretty succinct uh, definition of it. Again, the, the things we said before, the strengths of the film are less in its narrative, its its characters directly, yeah. than it is its themes and how they're uh, presented to us and the commentary that it's presenting. Oh god, yeah, the first 12 minutes of this film are utterly disorientating. Like, it's just like so much happens in 12 minutes. Like, there's this, there's this poker game where like someone's cheating, but you're like, I don't really, like, it does that thing that I don't actually like very much and is very much of the time and is very much novelistic of it's just like here's a character here's a new character here's a new character i'm like i have not remembered who the first character is yet and now they're in this thing and now this person's here it's just like the first it's like the first chapter of a book introducing all the characters and you're like i, I please one at a time it's it's actually a kind of interesting convention of silent film in general is that mm. you'll see like the opening minutes or a lot of oh, here's this character, they do this yeah. thing and this stuff. And it, and it introduces them with the title card. It's very theatrical, isn't it? Uh, yes, exactly. It's like, And they, they introduce them with the actor's name as well. So yes, it's like which a, is a theatrical so cool. presentation. Like everyone coming in front of the, the curtain, you know, or, or, or however you want to present it in those terms. It well, is. yeah, do you reckon it's because you would have your little program where you could open up and yes. it would like, blah is a blah. So it's your little kind of like stage notes at the beginning. So yeah, it, which is so difficult to like our, our trained eye at the moment of you're like, stop telling me what characters are and let me find out through the drama of the film. Is it how we're used to character being built? Mm-hmm. It's definitely a little bit more uh, the theatrical side, like we said, in yeah. terms of like, it's understanding of that there's a relationship between the audience and the and the film. Yeah. And it's, it's a kind of aware of that. A film as performance. Yeah, yeah, that 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 uh, canvas proscenium, I guess I would call it. Mm, oh, very nice. That's very, very nice. I love that. Love that, love that. Um, so so the film, you're right. So as, as a narrative piece, it is often deeply confusing. <laughs> Things happen for no real reason because it is propelling forwards to really important conversations or revealing moments about race relations in America, specifically focusing a period of the revival of the Ku Klux Klan because of Birth of a Nation, because of Birth of a Nation. We've all said that there. Um, that film is single-handedly is to overstate, but had such an impact on a d- defunct, dying in- well, institution, too strong a word, to bring back, revitalise. And so this is set in the aftermath, in this period of real danger and horror, and very much focuses on the inter-community relationships and occasional relationships to the wider community. And as part of that is our preach character, who is in it briefly and is really, really fascinating. Tell me more about our preacher. The, the preacher character, uh, again, I think is very emblematic of Michaud's disdain for, for yeah. religion as a tool for oppressing... Open of the masses, there you go. And, and it's very interesting because it's a self-perpetuating oppression that he is very commentating on. And this extends into his other nominal surviving silent film, Body and Soul, in which mm. Paul Robeson plays a duplicitous, corrupted preacher character. It's yeah. all about that. And so I find it very interesting in how, uh, again, in very blunt terms, the the text presents this preacher character as very subservient to the the oppressive white characters of the film because he is... Which we see repeated as a structure out of there are certain figures of the black community in this who see their way to success as not through kind of like collectivity or through community building, but as looking up to who has the power in society and trying to get a relationship to them because they feel that that's going to bring them up. And we see that again in, in the most famous sequence of the film. The thing that's yeah. most seen is the, I can't remember his name, um, but the tattletale at the end and that, that whole sequence. Right. In, in very literal terms, the, the preacher presents his, like, blase uh, 
consideration of of the, the yeah. plights of his brethren as uh you know the that he is or, or or i guess the uh domination of the, the the white characters in particular in this plane this earthly yeah. existence as being unimportant in comparison to the the treasures that await in in heaven uh is the idea and yeah, so, and then that's that's such a line that's used in original art, being like, you know, I'm preparing you for the, you should worry about the next life, not about this one. And again, showing how you can use these belief systems to enforce ongoing ideologies and belief systems. And that is one of the most interesting, consistent themes for me in Misho's work, mm. in that how religion is used as a tool to keep the black community at large sedate. It's so interesting because, like, I mean, most of us know religion. And if you grew up similarly to I, you know, like Christian religion through like aphorisms that are like handed down to us. And like one of the ones that keep coming up is that idea of like to bear witness is a key part of like Christian theology. And to see the institution of the church actively turn against that and being like, as opposed to like active looking away from things, as opposed to like this key act of like to bear witness to suffering, to be the person that notices and therefore acts. And, and I find it very significant because you can see through history how important mm. religion has become for a lot of black communities how prevalent it is and how it's something they've turned to as a source of comfort as a, a direct result i would say of the horrors of, of slavery that was often used and as a and and because of displacing previous religious communities as well of taking yep. communities out of very like faith-based societies and then placing them in a society where that faith is not allowed to exist leads to a growth of like different faith because you know the the wants to spiritually express and churches like church lowercase church is so important and so undervalued in the sense of like religion gives community and yeah. in these groups that sense of like having a community and that is a thing that is, is is so lost to so many people and that's why so many people turn to religion of that sense of companionship and community and i wanted to highlight that as well because that is an important distinction i feel like that often is overlooked when it comes to discussing religion in, mm. in general but uh particularly in terms of its depiction in film especially i i love to see it framed in these very different hierarchies yeah. here in terms of there is the religion of the institution of the church yes. of the the wider net of this hierarchy and belief system and this wider community that is trying to grow and control and such and then there is the religion of the the individual and the smaller yeah. community that has this that that it, there is this purity to and this desire to to be better and to be uh, yeah. helpful and expressive and the validity of one in the face of the corruption of the other is such an interesting disparity mm. to me that 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 both exist simultaneously and so whereas one can be religious you know and that be a very good and valid existence despite the existence of the corruptive institution of religion yeah as a wider net i as like i don't know because i'm very literary um in my professional background I, I go back to william blake a lot whom i absolutely love and like the william blake is that perfect example of loves religion hates the church and so <laughs> much of his poetry and one of his, one of his famous, famous paintings is just called the pope in hell it's just like that's hell <laughs> that's the pope because william blake is utterly hardcore like that so like poems like london that just show like the church as an ultimate corruptive influence but then use this really beautiful religious and faith-filled language of being like a thing that sh and it's like the despair at this should be beautiful and you people are ruining it and using it and distorting it yeah. um and yeah there is an undercurrent of that in this film certainly and and i think it's an important distinction to make because you don't want to invalidate people's individual experiences i personally know, do not know yeah there are a lot of people who find a lot of restitution and hope through religion 
an individual case that is wonderful yeah. but obviously especially with with christianity in particular when when you kind of scroll back a, a bit and take a look at the the wider picture especially I mean, yeah, history, corruptive hierarchical institutions are bad like hi hierarchical oppressive institutions are bad is 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 there a more driving force in the corruption of the world at large than in christianity I did, but then that does invoke the the argument of like how far do you go back into causal factors and what leads to that factor and what leads to that factor yeah, yeah. Uh, because it's like an expression of, of dominance and power and that's just the vessel that people have found for that certainly and then, of course, there's the interesting history of the the oppression of the Christians before. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Again, it's a it's a messy history of you know kind of back and forth that is not easily ex explainable away. But that's part of what makes it so interesting. Yeah. So within our gates, which I I, I really really like this film. I think it's I think it's really really brilliant. Um, and every time I watch it, I I forget that it is narratively very very strange and and confusing, but. It's the political moments, and you are totally right. It is an incredibly didactic film, but it is didactic from a point of of necessity and and, and yeah. real honesty. And even if it is presenting it didactically, it has such an understanding, because of course it does, because of where it comes from, of the actual presentations and people and relationships. If it, it does sell existence on screen and uses soldics like uses that sold existence to make a lot of very pointed, very interesting points. Oh, and I, and I said it earlier, it's kind of like a, a a criticism of Michaud's approach to direction, mm. that he is very blunt, direct, you know, and, and yeah. his dialogue is very in your in your face. But I think that's also, again, as he said, a necessity. Yeah. The fact that these issues being raised in the film are as pertinent today as they were a hundred years ago is kind of a big sign that we're not yeah. learning from the lessons. We're not changing anything. So, yeah, you know, maybe we need to be a little more blunt. I, I have this conversation a lot. I, I feel too often... Um intelligence and subtlety are used as synonyms and i do not think they are i think you no. can be very very blunt and very very didactic and deeply intelligent and a lot of the most intelligent films realize that certain topics subtlety is actually cowardice there are a lot of supposed satires that use subtlety as a way of actually directly saying nothing uh, as opposed to some films that actually have the audacity to come out and actually say something and be shocking and be upfront and be overt and i think around these topics you should be upfront and overt and well and also it should be said that silent film itself lends itself more to direct very uh, yeah, 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 yeah. allegorical representations you know subtlety is is not something that is uncommon per se but it is yeah but a, a different kind of i guess because it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's and the style of performance is is still very much born out of theater this is not i mean people like to to mark um figures like marlon brando as like changing a style of acting to a more like cinematic acting this is still very much i'm given the impression of a character this is not like i'm living in this role and i am a human that is living and breathing and i've fought on screen it's these theatrical like shapes like i don't know it's out there as tableau the inherent limitations of the medium, which again I don't, I don't think are bad things, lend themselves more inherently to being direct and blunt, yeah. not just in terms of only having visuals really to communicate, but also the the brevity of silent films, like the the shortness. This is a sub ninety minute feature that yeah. has to make its point in that time, so it has to be a little more to the point, quick. Yeah, to, yeah, to yeah, get yeah. It out there, and it wants to be exciting. It, like this is actually quite exciting. I saw a few reviews of this on Letterboxd, of course, talking about how this is a great entry point silent film. I really agree. Like a lot happens, a lot happens is very exciting. I was really impressed of the parallel editing at the end of this film. Um, having recently gone to see Wakanda Forever, for example, and being like reminded that all these Marvel films just end with the and there are free sequences and we just edit between them. But seeing that logic of film in a film from 1920 is awesome. This thing that like bores me in modern cinema, seeing it from a 
film over 100 years ago is, is, is quite revelatory. Like that, the ending, the way it crosscuts between these like rising climactic moments that's also set in the past and like within like this frame, this like narrative frame, is really wonderful. There's some really exciting dynamic filmmaking. The poker scene at the beginning is quite confusing, but that little camera trick of showing that mirror on the table is really, really cool. And I, I think it should be said that the ending of the film is really kind of the big thing that a lot of people point to in its mm. big significance. There's, it's know, brilliant. There's, it's a big, kind of very hard, you know, difficult to watch at times lynching sequence that, that takes place. Yeah. And that is very harrowing for a lot of people to watch, but particularly for the time. And, you know, one of the other contextualizing details of the film should be noted is that this was made in the wake of a number of significant race riots throughout the, the country yeah which again links to why people were putting out statements racist mount sims being like please don't show this film because we think it's going to inspire like further yeah. um, unrest in particular for for this one especially the chicago race riot of 1919 was one of the more larger ones of a, okay. of a wider ones that were later labeled uh, labeled uh, part of the, the red summer to give you a yeah. sense of that and it, it was largely due to a lot of anti-black sentiments uh, on the rise after the settling of uh, World War One, a lot of people coming back, you know, finding the further spread of yeah. bl- black citizens throughout various communities and such. And there's also, particularly in the North, there were a lot of strike breakers who were seeking out black workers to fill industrial ranks as the midst of the labor movement was growing and galvanized. So a lot of those sentiments were yeah. uh, pursued on by these uh, issues ongoing and so of course the film is directly in, in commentary with that which is interesting i want to segue that into actually a talk about the very end of the film which is really interesting because it's it's the very end of the film relies on a few historical and cultural references which which i did not have and needed to look up because it, it refers to things that it presumes that you are there in 1920 and therefore you're aware of like recent history and recent american history and i, and I was not and so therefore it was quite hard for me to pass politically what was being said and then i looked up what was being said I was like ah that's what's being said but there's this really interesting bit at the end where the 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 now love interest to be married kind of like recontextualizes this idea of being like the american history is black history but also Black history is a, is a history of, of, of revolt and is a, is a history of triumph. And that's such an interesting moment. And I had to Google a few things to get that from it. Because I was like, I don't know what you're referring to here. And when I found out what they were referring to, it's really, really interesting of that like reclamation or clamation, I guess, of no, to be black is to, is to be American. And that like stage of like African American identity, which is really interesting, but then also grounding that in a spirit of rebellion, in a spirit of doing like look what we can do, look what we have done, and look what this means. Um, did not hit me on the first time because I did not have the the background for it, and this time very very powerful, very very powerful. Yeah. Though again, it is just said. It's just it's just someone says this is the case. So that's that is how the film talks. Someone sits someone down and goes, let's have a lecture about this, and you're like, oh, interesting, thank you. Yeah, some people may not like that that kind of presentation, that very direct, yeah. confrontational nature of the film, but I think it's very necessary and it's very affecting. I think I, I yeah. think it's potent and successful because of that style. So even though it's something that, as as a filmmaker for me, show sometimes I I brush up against, yeah. uh, I I admire. Yeah, because with the yeah, we, we we have different tastes. I think there, which has come up a few times of of, of what we go to in, in in film, which is very interesting. But I, I'm very glad because like, yeah, I I knew you'd seen it, but if I didn't know you'd seen it before and really really liked it. There are points I was like, oh, I'm not sure what David would like about this, like filmically. So I'm, I'm glad that you, you come out. No, there, there's positive. a lot. It's it's I guess it's just the difference between like a film I like like and a film I r- really appreciate. Deeply admire. Yeah. Yeah. 
So it's like, it's, this is not something that I'm like, you know, oh, I feel like watching a film today. Let's go on within our gates, you know? That's <laughs> definitely not the kind of the film it feels like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This, yeah, this is not being transported into, like, the world of cinema. This is, you know, like, let, let's let's watch this and think about this for a while. And in often the ways that film doesn't make us think, because, again, very, very upfront. Mm-hmm. Very much so. So I wanted to know what version of the film you saw in terms of, like, a, a restoration. You mentioned earlier looking to see the Library of Congress yeah. on, online, but I don't know if that's the one you ultimately tracked down So the, the one that I watched was the one that had the omitted bits at the beginning where it has the title card, and I presume that's all of them. Yeah, because that is just some footage that's still lost. You know, even though we have the film effectively in yeah. total, there's still a scene that's that's missing, which I think, okay. again, the, the, the presentation of it there still strikes me as something that I, I wrote when I, when I wrote it here. I said, the decrepit condition of the surviving print, including a missing scene early on, is a testament to the history's white-centric narrative and the necessary mission by all to represent integral and unsung stories by important filmmakers. So yeah. the the missing aspect of that, where it has to describe the scene in text, itself is a striking moment to me watching the film. Because it's a reminder that this is something that was not considered for, that was yeah. actively not sought to survive or, you know, or you know, pushed away from. So it's very interesting how that in and of itself, the incomplete nature itself is a kind of commentary. That's a really good point. Can in in our kind of like our coda here? Can you tell me more about the restoration and discover this film because I don't know much about it. Yeah, well, that's why, and I, I wanted to ask if you saw because the Library of Congress version, the one that's preserved through them, is kind of the the primary way to see it now. It's the, yeah. the best surviving one, and how I saw it as well. But it's only been that way since uh, 1993 when they preserved it from a copy that was found. It's older than you. Yes, yes it is. <laughs> so the, the film was found in the 70s in a Spanish archive. <laughs> People, listeners, hang out in archives more. Hang out in random archives and look for films. They, they, they might be there. Go to an archive. It was retitled as La Negra, which of course means the black woman. That retitling makes things really difficult though, because like people are on the lookout for certain films and are not just opening up every like box of celluloid and like handling it to play it. So just like some weird retitling can be the reason why certain films are lost. I'm gonna tease one later. There's a there's a film later on that we will cover that I've cool. found out, but it was literally nobody knew about it for a while because the name of the film was The Unknown. <laughs> so it was it was just like sitting there labeled unknown. 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 And and, like, and yeah. nobody thought to to check it. They're like, oh someone checked it and it's unknown. <laughs> Oh, oh, this is actually a film that we thought has been lost. Oh, It's got oh, Liam Neeson in it and everything. Um. <laughs> but yeah, so it was retitled, and again, it was uh, details in terms of when exactly or who found it are yeah. not, not as recorded, but it was found in the 70s in the Spanish archive and was restored by the uh, Filmoteca Española. That might have been where it was found. I did not find any direct information to corroborate that. So one of the reasons it's thought that this film survived as opposed to yeah. many others. Again, one of the earlier cases I gave was that the film company in Jacksonville, Florida has only one surviving film in total. The yeah. Norman Studios has a film called The Flying Ace. There was an all-black production there. And it's the only surviving all-black cast film that they made. But the reason we have so many show films, in particular this one and Symbol of the Unconquered, yeah. were found internationally. And that's because uh, as an entrepreneur, he was able to make oh, distribution okay. right there. He he actively sought that out. It is thought that he may have had a an operation there for, for distribution. That's very, in, very interesting. In Europe. 
Uh, and so in hindsight, it's kind of incredible that he was able getting to... Getting beyond those gates, getting beyond those gates, not just within. Yeah. Yeah, and so it's 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 kind of interesting as well, again, because we said that there was not necessarily a market for these mm. kinds of films in, in yeah. Europe. Uh, but cyclical. the the fact that he kind of pursued that and created one in and of itself is uh, a big reason why so many of, of these films survive. These these ones in particular, we would not have these films had Michaud not been so pursuant of that's the you know making an international market for his production. That's so awesome, and it goes back to our point from last episode of like it is international distribution that's key, and like the lack of that at points, or the kind of like rampant um, focus on it from the Hollywood system is why certain things survive, and therefore starts to paint film history and set themselves as the texts, as the great films, or just the films in general um, to watch. Thank you so much, David. Yeah. So, what one of the other things again going back to the Library of Congress restoration that kind of struck me as interesting is I guess a commentary on the contemporary influence that we can mm. have on the presentation of silent films. I don't know if this is the one that you watched, but I watched it with the the new score that was commissioned by DJ Spooky. Uh, I did not. No, I did not watch the DJ Spooky one. Okay, I found it very interesting. I want to comment on a couple of things because there's cool. a there's a couple of musical choices that are slightly unconventional for a typical silent film, but I felt they gave it a particularly interesting identity that I felt thought emphasized a lot of aspects of the film. One of the things is that in the uh, the beginning, there's a lot of acoustic guitar being implemented, which is not a typical instrument for silent film mm. uh, scores whatsoever. But it, it gave it a kind of Spanish flair in certain moments, which hey. reminded, <laughs> it, it reminded me of its uh, discovery in there. So I was like, that is a really interesting aspect to kind of you know, attack onto it there that emphasizes this part of its history now as a kind of integral part of its identity. And then another thing was later on in the film, about 20 minutes in or so, a a drum machine becomes one of the core elements of of defining the score, which I felt was also, again, kind of echoing of this history of black music in particular, and adding that on to the history of of the film in terms of the, the representation and legacy. So it was, it was really interesting to me to consider how the music we apply to a lot of silent films yeah. now can emphasize a wider history and legacy, um, you know, in, in ways that the film itself never intended. I, I always love when you can communicate with the influence of something as well. I mean, it's it's, it's a strange comparison, but um, before Little Women came out, the Greta Gerwig film, I, I finally got around to reading Little Women, which, which I liked but did not love. And why I love the Greta Gerwig film is it, it took this very kind of like Victorian sensibility novel and gave it more of a romanticist flair to and to explain that more to the people that are not as, as nerdy as I. I felt like the way that it dealt with the book was so aware that the impact of the book was always so much more than the book itself. And that Little Women has existed as a memory and as a cultural product for longer than that. I mean, my wife is doing a, a PhD in archaeology and a thing that she talks about a lot and is such such a brilliant point is for so many of our heritage sites, not as much in the US because your history of heritage sites doesn't go back as far for obvious yeah. reasons, yeah. but so many sites have now a longer history of being a heritage site or an important history and that is a key part of their story. And I like that idea of when you can go back to something that is historical and you can translate its historical nature and its impact and its state as artifact alongside that. And that's why I really like some of the rescoring sometimes is because they're so aware of how it's received now and it's been received over time. 
Actually, I think that's more true of America than than you might realize. Particularly, okay, I'm history... again, I've not I've not been there, so well be, because the history is so young. So one of one actually, of the... no, yeah, actually, yeah, no, you're right, yeah, because things are so young. So one of the primary examples I can think of is Monticello, which is uh, Thomas Jefferson's plantation, and it's the idea that Monticello has existed for a longer period of time yeah. as a location to be toured and seen, mm. and as a historical site. Then it existed as Thomas Jefferson's home. And and that's, like, that's, that's fascinating. So the history of it and the way they present it, talk about it, is often as much, if not more, about how it's been presented over the years and the way in which it's talked about and it's, you know the way it's been presented and restored yeah. than it is about when Thomas Jefferson lived there and what he did and his various belongings. Yeah. Well, I feel like it's time for our discussion to, to beautifully wrap up. So thank you so much, David. So we'll be back with you next time talking about more recovered silent film. But before then, as it's been like alluded to on this episode, um, so thank you for listening so much, but can you please start checking those basements, please? Please start checking those local archives because there might be something there lying around that is like of huge historical import. And once you've found that, share it with the world, but also watch in the mood of sharing, please share us with the world. Tell your friends about this and find us on our other networks. So um, the Twin Geeks, of course, twingeeks.com, and for me, um, the Stacks on Film. You find us on Patreon, Twitter, etc., if that still exists. Um, we'll be back next week with more films rescued from the ashes of history. Thank you, David. Thank you so much, Steve.